Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So uh, today we have uh, Michael Leithhead, who is Head of Global Fixed Income at EFG. Uh, Michael, welcome. Good to be back, Maze. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a very, very tough environment for uh, fixed income this year. Obviously, the um, inflation debate and now the recession debate and just sprinkling a bit of Russia-Ukraine energy and food crises in there as well. And uh, we have a, a very interesting cocktail for fixed income markets in uh, so far this year. And uh, certainly, I, I know, Michael, that you and the team feel battered and bruised so far this year. <laughs> yeah, it's been, I think it's been the toughest environment in my career. Even going back into the global financial crisis, I don't remember it being quite so volatile or... Um, or extreme in terms of uh, the swings that we've seen. So um, it's definitely been a tough year. Yeah. So um, uh, hopefully it starts to get better. Certainly um, the recent inflation data would hopefully um, suggest uh, so. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to um, delve in at this point really into the uh, the macro environment that, that we're in. Um, obviously we've had... Um, a significant amount of uh, rate increases by the Federal Reserve this year, obviously also by um, the ECB making their first kind of steps uh, as the, the SMB and, of course, the Bank of England. Uh, the loan holdout uh, of the major developed economies has, has been Japan, and uh, they seem to be going their own merry way in terms of uh, keeping policy very, very loose, uh, as they have done uh, for pretty much the last uh, decade. Uh, so um, inflation has been the the, the key challenge um, for uh, both uh, well, for all central banks and, of course, for investors over the course um, of this year. So, uh, Michael, I guess the first question we had, um, uh, our first uh, down month, in fact, maybe the second one, because I think April was, was a little bit weaker as well, but the first down month in terms of inflation and actually uh, a miss in terms of uh, uh, a, a downside miss uh, in terms of uh, economists' expectations on inflation. Um, obviously, difficult to read, uh, you know, uh, one month. But what are your thoughts on the, the recent inflation print? And, uh, you know, is this the beginning of a trend? I think... Uh I think the main thing it, for, to my mind is whether we've peaked in inflation rates. And I think that looks like it may well be the case with sort of you know, inflation having been above 9% and now coming down a little bit on, on a headline basis. And with oil prices and gasoline prices, you know, starting to roll over as well, there's a suggestion that that could also help um, at a headline level. Um, so I think we're probably likely to see inflation come down from here. Um, I think, as you mentioned, one... I think the term is one swallow doesn't make a summer or whichever bird it is. <laughs> um, but, but I think in terms of what we've seen, obviously a lot of the very volatile components like um, used car prices, which were up a huge amount and historically been much more um, stable uh, that have been impacted by COVID, uh, illustrative of the supply chain issues that we've seen have started to kind of uh, normalize out of it. So I think some of these factors that have been really pushing up Prices in the last 12 months have started to ease off. And what we're likely to see continue perhaps is things like owner-adjusted rent that's likely to be more elevated for some time. So 
I think you know inflation will remain you know elevated to what we've seen, and I think structurally that may well be the case longer term as well, which we may well get into later. Um, but I think the trajectory is downwards, and um, from that perspective, the market will be a little bit more comfortable. Perhaps there won't be so many upside surprises, which is really the shock that pushed yields that much higher in June. Um, so I think when you look at the components, there's certainly room for optimism. I think from a bond perspective, that means that you know uh, bonds can fi- start to find a sensible range. And when you look at inflation expectations, um, you know, long run break evens, thirty year break evens are back to two point two percent, ten year break evens around two point five percent. That's telling you that the market's sort of thinking maybe some of these uh, shocks are not going to be you know, so elevated and continue for as long as they have, uh, as maybe we were worrying about um, a few months ago. So the big debate certainly we've been having um, within the teams is, you know, where does inflation land relative to the previous uh, cycle? So the previous cycle really started in, call it 08, 09, went uh, in terms of inflation cycle uh, up until COVID essentially, where um, uh, inflation has been, you know, below 2%, closer to 1%. uh, across the Europe, uh, the UK, and indeed uh, the United States. Um, and um, we're probably moving to an environment where inflation is going to be a little bit higher. Um, and uh, what's kind of driving that, certainly from, from, from the discussions we've had, is you know, deglobalization means that um, you're, you're building nearby, Leads to 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 greater costs. Um, we have you know, challenges uh, with China and the supply chains, um, and you know, Russia not being uh, a reliable uh, energy source anymore. Uh, there are all these sort of factors that are all coming together to suggest that. Uh, I, I was going to add climate change mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, and climate initiatives. All of those things are coming together to to bring um nearshoring as a as a as a key theme for the foreseeable future nearshoring essentially does mean inflation is going to be that little bit higher clearly not crazy 70s or 80s higher but certainly a, a premium of somewhere between i don't know 20 and 50 basis points um within that context you know where do you think for example 10 year U.S. Treasury bond yields should be leveling out at. I mean, structurally, I guess if you assume that we were at you know one point seven, one point eight on average CPI in the last decade, and you add, as you say, around about half a percent, that would imply you know sort of two and a half, two and a quarter percent um, long-run inflation. Maybe there's more risk around that, and I think you know that has to be priced into uh, into the treasuries in the sense that. Policy rates may be more, um, yeah, the risk of policy rates being higher relative to just compounded lower, as we've seen in the last decade, it has to be baked in. So I think somewhere between three and three and a half kind of for the 10 year makes sense if you think, you know, real yield should be around 1%. But the range within the cycle could still be sort of anywhere between sort of one and a half and three and a half. Mm, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, so I think the the message we re- really want to give on on the inflationary front 
is that um, you know clearly elevation um, the elevated levels of inflation today are not sustainable. There certainly will be coming down as supply chains open up and uh, commodity prices uh, normalize. Uh, but that extra bit of inflation at the margin is is going to mean just a higher level of bond yields than we've been used to over the last decade. I guess the good news is that a lot of that is priced in. So um, I guess 10-year treasuries in the United States um, hit 3.5% uh, at the peak. Um, and then now we're sitting around sort of 270-ish. Yeah. And I think the market's basically trying to decide on the debate between recession and and further expansion. And I think part of that's the reason why you know, 10-year treasuries are where they are. It's partly about whether or not your monetary policy is going to overshoot and cause a problem or whether or not actually we have um, uh, we have a continued expansion, which means rates don't, actually don't have to come down at all or they you know, stay at relatively elevated levels, in, in which case you might expect, you know, some steepening in the yield curve um, from that perspective and, and yields moving a little bit higher. Um, I think there's also the angle that, um, you know, if you look at the US, it's definitely the outperformer. I would say globally in this inflation environment, if you look what's going on in Europe, um, much more challenging environment with obviously the gas uh, supplies influencing, um, you know, potentially growth much more severely, but also having that negative impact on inflation. Um, and in the UK, we've got a double bubble, if you like, with the problems that the US have on the labour side and as well as the energy prices. Um, so I think, you know, the US is, in, is probably in a slightly better situation from that perspective no exactly yeah I'll probably add parts of the emerging markets are probably also in that in that in, in that camp they're not necessarily having the same the same the same challenges so um, we've talked about inflation a little bit higher we need to get used to it um it's a different environment given these global structural forces that are that are in place only for the time being um then the next big debate which certainly crescendoed in June was around a recession or not. Um, and uh, for those who, who, uh, who are not sure you know, why recession is even priced, essentially with the Federal Reserve moving you know, two sets of 75 basis points, uh, probably now 50 basis points in September, and then possibly another 50 basis points again later in the year, um, these very fast-paced um, uh, interest rates that will obviously have an economic impact, uh, you know, six to 12 months uh, down the line, um, and uh, that indeed causing a recession. Um, thoughts around, um, you know, recession probabilities, obviously um, very difficult to know. I think people, uh, you know, at the, the core view at EFG today is that um, we'll clearly have a growth slowdown, uh, debatable whether we have a, a soft landing or a, a soft recession uh, sometime in, in 2023. Um, um, and, uh, you know, we're certainly not today thinking at all of a, a, a more hard recession. We can talk a little bit about that in a second. Uh, thoughts around that kind of narrative and the things we should watch out for? So I think in terms of... Um in terms of what, what I'm certainly looking at and keeping an eye on is is the labour market. Um, I think uh, you know, for a sort of, you know, the core view would be you don't want to see a pickup in, in, in unemployment. Unemployment is typically more of a lagging indicator anyway. Um, 
I think in terms of what the markets, you know, if I look at credit markets, for example, I think the credit markets have come back from being as fearful as they were. We were seeing high yield spreads around 600. That implied default rates of sort of 7%, which is much more aligned with what you would see in a in a recessionary environment and the expansion uh, expansionary environment. We're now seeing 450, which is maybe more in line with this sort of, you know, slower growth, but still, you know, more pressured financial conditions from the fact that rates are going higher, banks are looking to tighten um, uh, credit conditions. So there is, you know, there's, there's forces at work definitely to slow growth, but let's not forget we, we're coming from a high growth environment last year into something that's, you know, there's still a degree of pent up demand. We haven't seen excess capacity build up. So there's still, there's probably momentum in the economy um, that we haven't seen in previous cycles. When we get to the end of the rate hiking cycle, when we get to the end of the economic cycle, usually the sort of system is exhausted, whereas there's there's a degree of momentum in there. Certainly if you look at, you know, maybe not so much in the US, but there's still in a lot of countries um, high levels of unemployment, Europe or many of the emerging emerging economies. So there's a lot of, I think there's still this sort of a pent up demand. And, um, you know, we've also got these uh, structural changes you mentioned earlier about, you know, nearshoring and supply chain adjustments and climate change and all these factors, which are probably starting to, you know, we're at the very nascent stages of, of people, you know, reassigning capital and, and investing in whether it's in infrastructure or you know, manufacturing or whatever. Mm. Yeah. So, um, the kind of critical decision as to recession or not um, is very much about, you know, typically when we see a long-running economic cycle, what we tend to see a lot of excesses have been built up. You know, for example, in 06, 07, 08, it was about excessive credit that was built up, that obviously consumer credit that was built up that led to uh, the, the great financial crisis. Um, in the previous cycle, it was technology and this um, uh, technology boom and telcos bust that subsequently happened um you know a lot of excesses after a long-running expansion from you know the early 90s so whenever you see these long-term cycles there's there's a lot of excesses that kind of built up because this cycle so far is still in the very early stages we haven't had a an opportunity to build up many of those excesses where we've had excess has been you know, arguably we could say cryptocurrencies or any of those areas where you know, free money was available, lots of bored people at home um, during COVID, and uh, you know started to drive some of these things up, you know, to ridiculous uh, levels. Obviously, that bubbles burst, that free money bubbles burst, but it's relatively small uh, yeah. in the grand scheme of the the global economy. Um, so I think um, we haven't built those excesses in the systems yet, um, which would lead to a much much more harder. Uh, economic downturn than we would see in a, in a mid-cycle uh, period. Yeah, and I think what, you know, I think the main market concern stems from the way the yield curve is structured right now. And essentially looking at the two-year versus the 10-year is the implication is the Fed is going to get to a point where interest rates are too tight sometime next year. And that's what the market's worried about. But it, clearly there's a long way to go in terms of how the current monetary policy feeds through, how demand you know, is, is able to weather that. So there's still, you know, I think there's still time to really see how the economic data and how, and what the actual effect of that tightening is. Yeah, there's still a lot of work to do be, to, to be done there. I think the um, uh, the key thing here is that um, is the yield curve, for those who don't know, 
the twos tend part of the yield curve is heavily inverted. In fact, we haven't seen these levels uh, since, uh, in fact, uh, close to it since the, the early 1980s, uh, which was a, a very different economic uh, environment. So this inversion of, of the two-year yield and 10-year yield has, um, uh, you know, has, is quite dramatic. Um, and I said, probably in, in our lifetime, uh, career lifetimes at least, has been in the sort of early 2000s period when we saw the, this inverted. Um, and then before that, it was in the uh, early uh, 1980s. Any thoughts on what the yield curve or the two's 10 part of the yield curve is telling us at the moment? Well, I think, I think it's, it's looking at the, I think it's looking at you know, the future and saying basically, you know, if you get to this level, then there's a risk of that, you know, that, that, that you need to reverse policy at some point in time. Having said that, there's a lot of other factors. The global, as we mentioned, the global economic environment outside the US is that that bit weaker, I think, than in the US. And that part of the curve is often associated with risk premium and, you know, people looking for safety, essentially. And so when everything is going on in China and going on in Europe, um, you know, there's, there's probably a degree of risk premium built into that. And maybe is why we're such extreme levels, because ordinarily what would happen is the curve would be relatively flat uh, before we get to um, peak rates. Maybe there is an element of that risk premium built in the, into the curve right now, which is artificially uh, depressing rates. So I think it's, it's somewhere between that debate about, you know, whether or not growth slows down significantly or not, and also, you know, that additional risk premium for, for international economic environment, really. The, the other element then to your yield curve is looking at the two-year rate and the Fed funds rate, uh-huh. uh, which currently has a gap of, call it 100, 110, 120 basis points, uh, which, if you like, is the room the Federal Reserve has now until they hit their peak rate. Let's assume today that peak rate is, say, 3.5% um, uh, in terms of where they might get to late this year or early next year. Um, and uh, you know, then subsequently to that peak rate, rates start to come down again, right? So, um, uh, so they've got this call it 100 basis points of swing factor. Uh-huh. Clearly 50 basis points gets taken out in, in September, uh, let's assume. Um, then we're left with that residual 50 basis points from September to the end of the year or, or, or Q1 of 2023. Um, and I guess that is where we'll probably land in terms of debate on whether the, um, uh, whether the Fed has done uh, in terms of its increasing interest rates or has kind of further to go to then create a recession. Yeah. And I think the 10 year will move in that time either it could well move parallel yes. higher or yeah. it could, yeah. you know, it could, it could be that it, uh, it stays where it is. You know, it's, it's really comes down to how data comes in and what the evolution is. Uh, but I think reading into it right this second, maybe, you know, it's a bit too early. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think the, the five-year part of the curve is the part of the curve that's most interesting and in t- where the biggest flex is in terms of capital appreciation or depreciation uh, mm. and, uh, and the movements because it's roughly, in, you know, in the middle and, it, and it's much more sensitive to bo- both global and, and domestic forces. Well, arguably it's priced in all of the interest rates at the front end yep. and none of the downside risk or the, the risk uh, of rates going lower, if you like, uh, and the upside you'd get from bond returns. So I think in terms of the magnitude of the move, it's probably going to be the most sensitive 
part of the curve when you think about that duration element as well. Yeah, no, exactly. So let's talk about, you know, the recession and the speed at which the Fed has raised interest rates and how that feeds through into credit uh, and the, the more riskier parts of, um, of, of fixed income. When I think about periods in history when the Fed has increased rates dramatically, um, the one that comes to mind is March 1994 and subsequently the speed at which the Fed raised interest rates created you know, the tequila Mexican crisis, created uh, the bust of Orange County, because rates went up. So, uh, and, you know, there are other episodes in history when the Fed's moved so aggressively that then creates a, a, a credit issue or, or credit events that uh, obviously then lead to the Fed stop, stopping raising interest rates or even to start to cut interest rates. Um, what are your thoughts around credit um, and what are the things you're watching around credit at the moment? So I think the biggest concern we have is probably with companies that have high reliance on short-term financing and not only short-term financing, but potentially floating rate financing as well for a number of reasons. I think um, there are, you know, there are, there are essentially we're seeing interest rates move up. So that's cost, that's the base cost of funding going up. Plus we've seen credit spreads going up. So anyone with very short-term um, refinancing risk is suddenly paying a huge amount more. And then on top of that, what we're finding is because we have this degree of market volatility, actually high yield issuance is now lower than it has been for the last five years on a year-to-date basis. So you're seeing people much more, it's much more difficult to access the market. Um, I think with the economic outlook as well, companies that are very reliant on bank funding are finding it potentially more uh, difficult to, to get those lines, draw down those credit lines from banks who are also worried about the economic environment and very mindful of their their credit risk on their their books as well. So you're seeing sort of financial conditions tighten and that's most acute in those uh, those borrowers who have high uh, short-term liabilities, if you like. And if you go back to the 1994 crisis, one of the reasons why Mexico had that problem was because a lot of its liabilities were front-loaded, um, front-loaded against a fixed exchange rate regime. And emerging markets have learned some of those lessons I think in terms of uh, in terms of fixed rate exchange rates, um, um, but you still see in countries around the world that there are these uh, you know high reliance on short term um, short term funding, and you know it, it's typically in countries which are um, have been forced into that and have benefited from low rates, and that's why we're starting to see problems in places like Africa, for example, where lending conditions were very light for many African countries and now they suddenly tightened you know the, the actual uh, debt repayments are no longer sort of viable so you're starting to see these things pop up um, I think the other sort of uh, compared to the sort of 90s was around political factors and actually you know again it was a political kind of factor that kind of um, triggered part of the Mexican crisis I think it was the the, the assassination of one of the presidential candidates actually which triggered sort of concerns around political volatility look at countries like pakistan right now um that's been one of the sort of triggers that people have been worried about obviously sri lanka has been in a you know, significant political turmoil but we're also seeing political change in places in in south america so there are some concerns i think you know around 
you know, political risks and how this just influences um, investor sentiment, capital flows in an environment where actually fundamentals are strained because you know the dollar is getting uh, stronger, your ability to repay your dollar debt diminishes. You know, capital markets are uh, more restrictive, so you can't borrow as much, and all of those things are putting fundamental strains on on, on companies. Um, I think in developed markets, the concern is maybe more around um, private equity LBOs, where you know companies have been you know private equity have been borrowing heavily against uh, against their investments, leveraging them up, and actually, if you look at a lot of the defaults in um, in developed markets this year i think around 65 percent of them have been related to private equity or owned by private equity so i think the strain will come in those sort of leveraged um companies um an actual fact in a lot of high yield you know traditional high yield companies they're sitting on substantial liquidity at this point in time and there's they've been refinancing at lower rates and if you look at the refinancing activity, say um, in Europe, it's been more skewed towards sort of five-year maturities, which means they've been terming out their their maturities. They don't have that short-term maturity wall. So I think there's going to be this bifurcation. The ones that are most risky at the moment are those ones that are highly um, geared to short-term funding. So let me let me summarize that. So on the uh, sort of emerging market kind of country level, um, countries. Uh, or companies within those countries relying on short-term funding. Um, they've had the huge benefit over the last two or three years of very low rates uh, and being able to uh, survive that uh, very easily, but obviously with a strong dollar and um, and higher dollar interest rates uh, and reliant on short-term funding is, is, is creating that squeeze. Um, and then the catalyst point for further deterioration, i.e. investor... Um, uh, concerns are really driven by the political events. So if you've got a high political uncertainty in a country and you're reliant on short-term funding, that is a cocktail for problems, uh, essentially. Exactly. Uh, as we as, as we move forward in the short term. So that's, a, if you like, at the country and emerging market level. Then moving down on to corporate level. Um, uh, here, I... I, I you know, I, I guess the key point is because we've had interest rates were very low, at record low levels, uh, given the kind of fled, Fed QE programs and other central bank QE programs over the course of the last two or three years, they're able to fund at relatively low levels, but for long periods of time, so five years, six years, rather than one or two years. I think that's that's exactly right in in the context of most sort of public companies and everything yeah. else where the where there's a pot- potentially a pinch point is is in sort of private equity yeah, yeah. In the and, LBOs, yeah. And, and and to your point about you know sectors there aren't any major sectors that we could individually sort of pinpoint here and say it's this sector there's a risk it's more that sort of profile of company rather than a sort of sectorial risk that we've seen maybe in the past so energy in uh in, in sort of 2015 right where saw a fundamental collapse in oil prices which led to those highly levered oil companies then creating a contagion effect into the high yield market i don't think we're not seeing those large sectors have significant problems even though energy prices are high today companies have kind of reformed their balance sheets they're going to be sensitive to declines in oil prices and you'd expect energy 
you know, energy, the sector to maybe underperform given its outperformance this year, that valuations have got so rich. Um, but it's maybe not that default scenario, that sort of structural default scenario that we saw sort of in previous cycles around an individual sector. So I think certainly I would be, I'm more concerned about the profile of companies that have borrowed short, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, uh, that certainly makes, uh, that certainly makes a lot of sense. I would say the period I always, always also think about is the sort of 2000s uh, period where it was the telcos and the technology companies that had huge li- amounts of uh, debt. And for those who can remember, it was the um, uh, the 3G auctions at that time that led to uh, to huge amounts of money being spent by telco companies and, of course, a big deterioration in credit as a result of that uh, and transfer of wealth from telcos to governments who were auctioning out those uh, licenses at that time. So, yeah, so, so this goes back to one of the points we made earlier is in the previous cycles, there's always one sector, usually a very large sector that's overextended, which then creates... Uh, 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 financial conditions, uh, th- then all sensitive financial conditions, as we saw. Uh, Lehman is obviously the other one <laughs> that uh-huh. is very obvious in the uh, in in the great uh, financial crisis. So, um, just kind of peeling down further in terms of credit. So, um, get your point that um, there's going to be less uh, sector and contagion risks. Um, uh, I think that they're far more diminished than they have been in the past. Um, You know, contagion is always one of the biggest risks, uh, be it sector contagion or indeed uh, country contagion or or regional uh, contagion. We think those risks are there, but political risks are still quite elevated. You know, we think about political risks in the UK. Uh Um, We're probably just going to go and spend a lot of money on the fiscal side. Um, And uh, Italy uh, is, I guess, the, uh, the perennial one. Uh, although UK arguably is now a perennial one as well. Um, and then we have, um, you know, Latin America is also the one that um, that is fairly perennial. Do you think um, Latin American debt, uh, given the political backdrop, um, is vulnerable at the moment? You know, uh, I think, uh, again, drawing analogies to, 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 to 94, do you think Mexico could be a problem again? You know, what what are your... What are your thoughts? I mean, we've got some big issues like Pemex, for example, you know, in that, in that region that, that, that could be vulnerable in that, in that circumstance. I think political volatility is going to remain high. I think, um, I think we've obviously just come through elections in Colombia. We've got a new socialist government, I think the first time in a long time, um, who are promising quite a lot of um, positive reforms, I think, in terms of sort of... Um, looking to, to make tax reforms that the Colombians have been trying to do for years and years and years. Um, so there's a lot of promises on the table. Some are actually relatively market friendly. It's been interesting to see, you know, if you look at like the appointments in some of the government, governments, let's say in Peru or in um, Colombia, they have been cognizant of the finance minister and having credible market friendly <laughs> finance ministers to start with. But Peru, for example, has had a revolving cabinet, like, <laughs> you know, fairly frequently. So those political risks are still elevated. Um, but I think what investors have taken some comfort in is, you know, fiscal policy, fiscal frameworks that have been more sensible and relatively low levels of debt, at least in countries like Chile and um, and um, Peru, which have, you know, that much more latitude than for maybe political error. Where you, where you worry about is where you have that cocktail of, you know, of bad debt metrics and then a, 
a, sh- a sudden political shift. So we've obviously got elections in Brazil. I think people are expecting Lula to come in again, but um, uh, you know that his an expansionary an expansionary fiscal policy there may not show up for a number of years. So I think um, people have generally sort of said, look, LATAM is fairly insulated, at least from the geopolitical risks we've seen. Yes, there are domestic risks, but you know, that demand a little bit of a premium, but maybe not, you know, the extremes that uh, you would maybe associate with the, you know, those sort of 1990s type um, uh, um, Period, periods. Yeah. Um, so, so the the other bastion of stability these days is the Middle East. Any uh, any uh, sort of comments around um, the Middle East? I can't believe I'm actually saying that, but there we yeah. go. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's generally been, I guess, a, a positive story. I mean, if you think about energy security, they sit in the middle. Um, the, I think, um, you know, energy prices could be, remain relatively elevated because of obviously the loss of Russian supply and West's tilt. So, Countries like Qatar, who have a massive expansion program for the for their LNG uh, output, is you know, it's certainly a positive story. Um, what's interesting is Saudi has some pretty interesting uh, um, ESG, <laughs> ironically, some pretty pretty interesting ESG plans um, to sort of build out renewable energy. And obviously, they've got a huge amount of cash to build into things like green hydrogen, uh, solar you know, solar, renewables, wind, etc. So the windfall they're getting from energy prices, if they spend it wisely, can help them transition, still be energy producers in the future, but maybe of a different, um, you know, a more renewable um, source. So I think the fiscal side of things still look very healthy. Obviously, the current account side of things look very healthy. And then on the ge- geopolitical front, you know, I think tensions with Iran are obviously consistent but they've kind of diminished and then if you look at the bridges that are being built with israel um they're relatively positive as well so i think um there's still those those uh those issues around but economically and uh, maybe on the geopolitical front it's kind of calmed down a little bit more recently so um and then i guess the problem charles only for the last couple of years has been china and china real estate uh, mm. given that rather china high yield um, uh, has been real estate orientated. Um, what are your um, you know, thoughts there? Obviously, you know, on China, we're kind of waiting for more clarity in terms of stimulus and exactly how they're going to react to the defaults on the real estate side. And, and of course, we have a, uh, many Chinese now, uh, you know, failing to pay their mortgages because they're not sure that the real estate purchase they're going to make is going to be completed. Mm. So I think the, the Chinese government have been, you know, trying to ensure there's no moral hazard risk there. And they don't want to bail out the market and they don't want to bail out the companies. And so they're looking for every way they possibly can, I think, to um, support the projects and support the social stability. Um, you yeah, know, and obviously housing, education, all of these factors were part of the regulatory um, objectives that led to sort of a lot of the reforms we saw last year. Um, so I think they'll continue to kind of do small measures. Um, I think we were anticipating that it would be maybe if the economic conditions got worse and obviously with zero COVID policy, you know, uh, economic growth is looking substantially worse than maybe we had anticipated at the start of the year. 
you would have expected a more kind of direct intervention. But it does seem that uh, the intervention is likely to be small and um, targeted uh, rather than a sort of big bang approach, which is really what's putting the pressure on. But as you mentioned, things like the mortgages, that's about social stability. And I don't think the government want to risk social stability and social pressure, especially given, you know, there's a degree of unpopularity around zero COVID uh, policy since, you know, very stringent lockdowns have come in. In terms of a, a question that we obviously get quite a lot is how does the government intervene in some of these you know, defaulted Chinese property companies? What is the mechanism for, you know, recapitalization and, and you know, finishing off the projects that are already started? I mean, the way the projects work, a lot of them are at a sort of joint venture level. So there'll be different, you know, different companies involved in those projects. And basically, you know, the government is trying to buy out individual projects or you know, provide the finance to complete and, those projects. And is that why there's additional complexity than you would normally expect? Yeah, there's huge complexity in the market. And I think that's you know, why the restructuring of many of these, um, many of these uh, property companies is going to be very challenging because there's bank loans and things against, you know, projects, uh, project level, you've got various interests shared with companies that are performing and not performing. So in actual fact, probably the most sensible way for the government to complete the project, you know, is to is to finance the project itself and get that delivered at JV level. But from a from a creditor perspective, and from a direct bailout, you know, unless you're willing to go out and bail out the company and make sure they have enough cash and and what have you, then um, which would be far more expensive, perhaps, than doing it at a project level. So I think that's why it's relatively t targeted at the moment. So, so not really a quick recovery at all in this uh, in this environment. Um, it doesn't seem so. I think you know housing. I think the expectations are that house sales may start to pick up in the second half of the year, but you know I think it's still going to be quite a depressed market, and it's certainly one where what you know for what we can see buyers you know general public are looking towards companies that they can rely on to deliver those projects so that means soes and um you know state-owned enterprises and and, and government related uh, companies rather than maybe some of those private developers who have been strong in the past mm. so um let's look at kind of macro level in terms of kind of relative attractiveness uh, from your perspective in terms of you know, government investment grade high yield um and say regional you know what is the most attractive for you what is least attractive from your perspective so i think you know if you take the base case scenario of you know, growth continues to be very strong uh, or growth, you know, slows down, but is, you know, so growth so, slows down, but we we remain in sort of positive territory, I should yeah, say. Yeah, The soft then, landing sort of, uh, let's call it soft landing stroke, mild recession uh, scenario. So I think in that sort of scenario, um, I think, you know, high yield is probably going to give you the best total return. Um, you'll probably see you probably see spreads stay where they are. Yields are relatively elevated, and and, and, we'll, and we'll probably go sort of sideways from here, um, given where credit spreads are today. When they were at seven hundred, that was a little bit too cheap for that kind of scenario. Um, I think from a you know in terms of sort of thinking about 
if you still possess you know the risk on the downside of a recession then i think investment grade looks you know pretty attractive here spreads are still relatively elevated and if we were to go into a recessionary environment you'd expect treasury yields to you know uh, decline so that would probably more than offset the credit spread uh, widening because credit spreads are already quite wide in investment grades so we're still trading in the sort of 60th percentile of observation so that's pretty cheap on a sort of historic basis so investment grade probably gives you the most attractive return in either scenario high yield gives you that beta return in a in a in a in a market scenario i think fixed income for the first time maybe in a while for people is looking a lot more attractive people have generally been underweight yields are much more attractive structurally plus i think now you have that um uh, you have that more traditional correlation that could come back in the event that we did have weaker, uh, weaker growth. Emerging markets. But I think emerging markets. You've got. Um, I think you've got still some risks around some of those more strained economies that I mentioned. Um, valuations have certainly widened out, but if I look at some of the sort of you know, benchmark orientated holdings, things like you know, um, Egypt, for example, then that's a country that's, you know, susceptible to that funding risk, that's susceptible to that political risk. And those things could be quite binary outcomes. Either they go down to sort of 20 or 30 cents on the dollar, or they recover to sort of 90. Uh, and we're kind of in the middle and sort of 60s and 70s. Same thing with like Pakistan, for example. Um, so there's this sort of binary risk um, where I think, you know, if we do have a solid US economy where rates stay high, then they're going to be slightly more challenged than maybe developed market high yield or um, um, or investment grade. EM investment grade, I think where you've got strong fundamentals, that's the defensive safe haven to a certain extent. Um, and what we're seeing is quite a lot of dispersion in the market that's been driven by ETFs. So some spreads have remained relatively wide. You find there's laggards. Um, you know, the more benchmark orientated bonds, the big sovereigns, those are the names that have rallied more you know, significantly in, say, the last uh, month or so. Um, so there's this interesting dispersion in the market around not only uh, the credit fundamentals, but also around the sort of uh, market technicals. So touched upon something that is quite important is liquidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, I noted uh, the other day that. Uh, the Vanguard bond ETF is now bigger than the BlackRock bond ETF, but they've all grown quite a, quite a lot. Um, how much of an influence now are you know indexation or ETFs having on the fixed income market these days? I think they're having a substantial impact on the day to day flow um, because investors are increasingly using them as more tactical trading vehicles, short term trades to to move their let's call it their beta of their portfolios. So they'll sit on the bonds that they really like, and maybe that might be 95% of their portfolio, and they hold those, and then they adjust their market positioning using ETFs. So essentially it's the tactical component. But now market makers have to respond to that flow. And banks have, in high volatility environments, typically shrink their trading books. Mm -hmm. So you suddenly find that you have higher degree of volatility around those flows from from the ETFs. And the banks have a smaller sort of balance sheet. So what we're finding is typically when you want to, when you find, when you find uh, um, you want to buy, there's no bonds, and when you find you want to sell, there's no one who's willing to sell. And it's down to sort of this ETF 
flow that's driving a lot of the volatility and it's coming out in some of the valuations as well. So when you're constructing a portfolio, um, it's interesting to see, um, it's interesting to see that actually there's this, this bifurcation maybe in terms of names that are held by ETFs and used by ETFs and others which are less benchmark or maybe less um, ETF orientated and therefore, you know, valuations are either more sticky on the way down, but equally they don't, they don't run up uh, as quickly when, you know, market flow comes back. Mm. Uh, certainly that's very interesting and it certainly means that we need to think a lot more, investors need to think a lot more carefully about uh, ETF holdings and uh, where and ETF flows and which bonds are going to be bid up, which ones are not, and, uh, and uh, you know, how that dynamic plays in terms of the periphery parts of the fixed income market. Um, in some respects, it's quite dangerous. A lot of these things are quite dangerous, given that you're going to create, um, if you're a heavy issuer in the benchmark, your natural interest rate is going to be a lot lower than if you have a, uh, a smaller issue and you're less important in terms of benchmark, you, you end up paying a premium. So that liquidity... Uh, premium is going to become, I suspect, bigger over time. Yeah, for I mean, if you're a long-term holder of those bonds, then that can be to your advantage. And if you have companies that are strong and um, offer you attractive yields over time, then you know, there's a significant amount of premium to be earned from that. Well, um, thanks, Michael, for taking us through that, uh, uh, unpacking uh, those kind of key themes around inflation, recession, the curve dynamics, um, credit events, relative attractiveness uh, of, um, of the different uh, credit markets around the world, and, uh, and of course, the um, uh, liquidity challenges uh, and the sub-asset classes uh, within that as well that, uh, that are there. So um, you know, thanks very much for, uh, for, uh, for, for, for taking that up. Thank you very much for having me, Mays. Um uh, I, I certainly hope for those uh, those better times. Um, we've been through many of these uh, these volatile patches, and I think uh, you know ultimately those typically turn out to be extremely good opportunities for investors. So I think um, it's always important to stay on top of what's going on, and um, and obviously when the opportunity arises, it's, uh, these these things come around from time to time. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, so, well, uh, we'll stop there. Uh, well, thank you very much again, again Michael. Um, and uh, we will speak to you again next week. Thank you. <laughs>